Hey friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. So the other night, Lindsay and I were looking through old photos and videos of our kids, which sometimes we do late at night. And she found this video of Noble, our oldest, and he was two years old. He's in the backseat of the car. He's in his car seat, and he's got just the most pained look on his face. And Lindsay's asking him, what's wrong? And she tells me the backstory on this video. This was taken just after they had dropped me off somewhere, and I had just gotten out of the car and left. And she's looking at him. She says, what's wrong? And he says, cracks, cracks. And she says, cracks, what do you mean? And he says, daddy's cracks, daddy's cracks. She says, what do you mean, baby? And he says, cracks on me. And finally she says, what are you talking about? Where are the cracks? And he points to his forehead. He points to his forehead. And finally she pieced it together. He was talking about the wrinkles on my forehead. He was realizing that when he got older, he was going to have wrinkles on his forehead like his daddy. And it made him sad. <laughs> I don't have any wrinkles. I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. Um, Man, we laughed so hard when we watched that video the other night. I mean, getting older did not look good to him. Maturity did not look good. You know, I've been thinking about, and maybe it's because I'm a dad, and I'm always thinking about, you know, what happens in our world in our, and in our lives through the, through the eyes of my children. I've been thinking a lot about what our kids have seen this year seen from people who are allegedly adults. I mean, think about it. This, this year that starts with a virus, and while the virus has brought out the best in many people, I'm thinking about our, our healthcare providers specifically, the virus has also brought out the worst in a lot of people. And I know you've seen that. You know, by nature, the virus has isolated us from one another, and it just turns out that humans don't do good, don't do well with isolation. And then I'll ask you to you know, think back earlier in the year when so many of us, including so many of our kids, watched a man die on the internet over eight minutes. Of course, I'm remembering George Floyd here. I mean, this kind of thing isn't supposed to happen, and they watch that you know, at the hands of people that we, that we trust. And, and I think about the, the police officers who go to this church who are close to me, even in my own family. And I think of these like wonderful people who I would love to see in a moment of crisis. And yet here was this man who did not reflect the best of who we are as adults, right? And then, of course, I think about um, the protests that were sparked in the wake of that that have spread across our country in every city in our country. I think about Martin Luther King Jr., Day is tomorrow, and this year that holiday has this kind of somber resonance because we are wrestling with unresolved racial issues that are deep-seated and ongoing. And of course, those protests, many of them were peaceful, and we need to recognize that, but we also need to recognize that many were not, and many became violent, and stores burned, and looted, and people hurt, and even killed, and well, much of that was not mature either, we'd say. 
And then, of course, last week, our Capitol was attacked. And there were gallows hanging outside the U.S. Capitol, this place that for so many of us is hollowed ground. And I think about my kids watching that. I mean, I really wrestled with Wednesday a week ago. Should I even let my kids see that? And I have wrestled with this all year long. I mean, think about the things our kids have seen happen this last year. And I know they have got to be thinking as they're struggling to understand these things. They have got to be thinking as they watch adults do all of these things. Where have all the grown-ups gone? Or more likely, you know, if that's maturity, then I don't want to grow up. Which is a problem. You know, because this is what we find in God's Word in Ephesians 4, verse 13. And I have not been able to get this out of my mind all week. This is what we find, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 13. God's goal is for us to become mature adults, to be fully grown, to be fully grown measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. I mean, I haven't been able to stop thinking about that passage all week long. I mean, I've been in Ephesians 4 all week. You probably can't see this because it's in pencil, but basically the whole chapter is underlined in my Bible. I can't get out of Ephesians 4 right now. And, and probably part of that is because of who I am. Uh, Foster, our, our middle son, told somebody the other day, he said, my daddy is a basketball coach, a preacher, a daddy, and a baseball coach. <laughs> and, and I laughed at that because while all those things are, you know, maybe technically true, they're not all equally true. I mean, I am just barely, just barely a basketball and baseball coach, as my record, my, my win-loss my win record will attest to uh, I'm not much of a basketball and baseball coach. And many of you think probably to yourself, I'm not much of a preacher either. But I think the reason I've kept coming back to Ephesians 4 all week long is because there is this word to ministers in Ephesians 4 that I just can't seem to shake. So Ephesians 4 lays out that God's goal is for us to become mature adults, to be fully grown, measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. But then if you go back up two verses, look at what we find in, chapter, in verse 11 of Ephesians 4. He, the Lord, gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and His purpose was to equip God's people for the work of serving and building up the body of Christ until we reach the unity of faith and knowledge of God's Son. And then he goes into the plan for us to grow into mature adults. Okay, the language he uses there, building up or growing up, is language of maturity. And he says, okay, I'm giving ministers to the church to ensure that God's people are always growing towards maturity, towards the standard of Christ. And I'll tell you, as I've been dwelling in Ephesians 4 all week, I've wondered, I, I don't know if I'm cut out for that. I mean, I'm pretty young. Uh, last week, I was wearing Band-Aids with cartoon characters on them. My finger's doing much better. I know you were concerned about that. I mean, in my family, it's a family of four boys in our household. So you can imagine the things we laugh at, even at the dinner table. There's nothing funnier in our house than a toot, right? Like that is the essence of humor in the gentry home, right? Like I don't know that I'm the most mature person, and yet here I have this calling to help God's people always be journeying towards the standard of Christ, which is maturity. I'll tell you, that's hard. And I don't know if I'm, if I'm cut out for it, right? 
You know, I've been talking with other preachers this week. One of my, one of my good friends who's been doing ministry for a long time quit this last week. This, this burden was just too much. Couldn't do it anymore. Another friend last week told me he's quitting in just a couple weeks. He's going to go into real estate. I can't blame him for that. The real estate market is great. The preaching market right now is tough. It's tough. And, and this is why. It's because we're living in an immature moment. And I'm not talking about y'all. You know, one of the reasons I'm so ready for us to get back to church next week and to be back together ever more over the weeks coming after that is because I am so ready for my kids to be back around you all. You all are the people I want my kids to see. You're the people I want my kids to grow up to be like. Like, I am so thankful for who you are, mature and growing towards more maturity, towards, you know, closer to the fullness of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for you. And yet our world is in an immature moment, and that's hard to deny, right? And even some Christians, if you look out, you know, at the recent events last week, you saw there was Christian symbolism all over the Capitol, you know, people claiming Christ as they, as they did these things. And it really makes you wonder, you know, is, are all Christians equally mature? You know, because they're representing us. They're representing us. And then, of course, it's not just Christians. You've got all these other people doing these things that our children have watched all year long. I'm just wondering what they have seen and what they think about what they've seen. You know, Paul goes on to describe in detail what I think is happening in our world. And he uses this language, sticking with the maturity theme, of infancy. And this is what he says. He says, we aren't supposed, this is Ephesians 4, verse 14. We aren't supposed to be infants any longer who can be tossed and blown around by every wind that comes from teaching with deceitful scheming and the tricks that people play to deliberately mislead others. Okay, he's talking about the immature here, and he calls them infants. And what he says is worth paying attention to in this moment right now. He says the immature, the infant, is the one whose life is based on a lie. And as I think about those in our world who don't know the truth, which we're going to talk about in just a second, I feel sorry for them. Because the reality is they were set up for that kind of hopelessness and um, they were set up to be misled. And in many ways, that's a social, a social and cultural phenomenon that has taken place over the last century. As we moved following the world wars, which disenfranchised, disillusioned us to such an extent, we moved from this confidence that you could know absolute truth, your, base could, your life could be based on absolute truth, and we shifted into this new era that folks call post-modernity. And you don't need to remember that, but the idea, the postmodern idea is that everyone's truth is their own truth. There's no standard, like the language that Paul uses here, for truth anymore. Somebody shared with me recently these two YouTube celebrities who were getting a divorce. He posted a video describing why it was happening, why it was happening and a few hours later she posted a video and she titled hers, My Truth. This was her version of the truth of that story. There's no standard anymore. But it's not just the world that has set up people to be infants, to be immature, and this is what I really want you to hear. What Scripture tells us is that lies come from the Satan. Jesus calls the devil the father of all 
lies. Okay. So where there is the absence of truth, what we know is that Satan is at work. And I think there's this temptation right now, whether you are on the right and you think the left wing is spinning half-truths and lies, or if you're on the left and you think the right wing is spinning half-truths and lies, there is this temptation to think that lies originate with our politicians. And what Jesus tells us is that all lies have one source, and that source is Satan. Okay, that source is Satan. And why? Why would Satan work in lies? You know, of all the ways that Satan could work in the world, think for a second about why he works with lies. Well, this is why if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, we read that God's big plan, okay, his plan for his people is to make them mature. His big plan for the whole world is that the whole world would be united under Christ. And Satan knows if that's the plan, that's what he's working against. And if he can get everybody to act like infants, to act like children, then they're never going to be united. And the way to get everybody to act like infants is to get them to believe lies and not the truth. So look back at Ephesians 4 with me for a second. Let me show you something here. There in verse 13, we read that God's goal for us is to become mature adults, to be fully grown measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. But then notice in the passage I read a few minutes ago, the line just above it, and then a few lines later, how he describes what maturity is. He says in verse 13 that it is unity of faith and knowledge of God's Son. Unity and knowledge. And then jump down to verse 15, he says this, Instead, by speaking the truth with love, Let's grow in every way into Christ. There's the imagery of growing. So we know he's still talking about maturity. And he uses two terms to describe it. Truth and love. Okay. Unity and knowledge. What is unity but love and knowledge but truth? Those two are paralleling one another. Okay. Think about that for a second. What he's saying is the source or the way towards the kind of maturity that binds us together that brings us to unity is knowledge of the truth. So in a world full of lies, what brings us together is knowledge of the truth. So then we got to ask, what is that truth? Well, let me, sh let me show you what Paul says here in Ephesians 4, and that's going to lead us to the book of Mark. What Paul says in Ephesians 4, a few verses later, okay, that what we listen to, what we were taught in verse 20, is the truth is in Jesus. Okay, you were taught how the truth is in Jesus. So there is a truth out there, and if we're going to find it, we're going to look to Jesus, and that brings us back to Mark. So we, we left our Good News series right before Christmas time, and we went to the Gospel of Mark. We hadn't made it very far into the Gospel of Mark. In fact, we stopped on this story. This is Ephesians, or sorry, Mark 3, starting in verse 7. And um, I was reflecting on Ephesians 4 all week and going back and reading where we had left off in Mark, in Mark 3, and I was struck by how much these two stories or this um, conversation about truth in Jesus and what we find here in this little story in Mark 3 about Jesus, how these two things dovetail. It struck me. So let me read you this passage in Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus left uh, with his disciples and went to the lake, and a large crowd followed him because they had heard what he was doing. They were from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, the areas around Tyre and Sidon. And Jesus told his disciples to get a small boat ready for him so the crowd wouldn't crush him. 
And he had healed so many people that everyone who was sick pushed forward so that they could touch him. Pay attention to this part. And whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down at his feet and shouted, You are God's son. But he strictly ordered them not to reveal who he was. Okay, what what I want you to see here is that the demons know something. But at this point, no one else knows. Which Jesus tells them to keep quiet about. Not yet, he's saying. Not yet. Specifically, they know who Jesus is. They know his identity. He is the Son of God, God's Son. So let's talk about that for a second. When we call Jesus the Son of God, there's a lot of things we mean by that. It means that he's chosen by God. He's delighted by God. We see that in Mark 1. He's the servant of God. That's what the language has in mind when we call him the Son of God. But at its core, at its essence, What we mean when we say that Jesus is the Son of God is that He's of the essence of God. He's got God in Him, that He is God. And so Jesus understands, like He tells His disciples in John 14, that anybody who has seen Him has seen the Father because He's the Son. Jesus understood that His purpose was to reveal who God really was and that He could do it and only He could do it because He was the Son. Of the Father. So this purpose of Jesus is revealing who God really is. So why then does Jesus tell these demons to be quiet? Why doesn't he let them just talk about this? Why doesn't he let them spread the message that this here is the Son of God? Well, if you watch what happens in Mark, again and again, Jesus tells demons and people not to share that yet. Every time they recognize that he's the Son of God, the one who's revealing who God really is, he tells them, nope, be quiet, not yet. We're not going to talk about that just yet. Okay, that happens throughout the book of Mark, starting in chapter 1 and spreading all the way to the end in chapter 15, where we find this. So let me turn over to Mark 15. Let me show you. Mark 15, we find Jesus on the cross. And at the cross, as Jesus is breathing his last, the centurion, a Roman centurion, looks up at Jesus dying on the cross. And this is what he says in verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw how he died on a cross, he said, this man was certainly God's son. And then there's no rebuttal. There's no response from Jesus or anyone else telling this man to be quiet. It's like finally the truth, the central truth of who Jesus is comes through and it's not silenced. What's the point? The point is that we cannot know who Jesus is. And because of that, we can't know who God is apart from the cross. That all of our attempts to identify who Jesus is, what he cares about, and because of that, who God is and what he cares about, that all of those attempts are, are misled until we see clearly at the cross who Jesus most is. Jesus says in Mark 10 verse 45 that he comes to give his life to liberate many people. He comes to give his life. He comes to die On the cross, the cross is always central to who Jesus is, was, is going to be. And it is because of that that we know that the cross is central to who God is. Because that's what Jesus, the Son of God, is revealing. He is revealing who God the Father is. And we cannot know, apparently, God or His Son, Jesus, apart from 
the cross. Okay, the cross is the essence of who God is. And because of that, it is the central and greatest truth that we need to know. I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to think about the fact that the cross is the central truth we believe. That it is the central truth we stake our lives on the cross. You know, the cross is when God chooses to give himself for you and I. He chooses to die in our place. There's kind of a way of telling the story of the cross in which it seems like, you know, God's dying for good people. He's dying for the people who would probably love him anyways. He's just kind of going the extra mile to win over those people. But that is not the story of the cross. These are not good people who are probably inclined to like God. We're told that we are enemies of the cross. You know, we're told that Jesus dies for us while we're still sinners, which is to say we are in rebellion against the holy and infinite and the great God most high. We are his enemies. The cross is what God does, not for people who like him. It's what God does for his enemies. It's what God does for his enemies to show them that he's for them. I mean, think about that. The way God treats those he doesn't agree with, those who are rebelling against them, those are his enemies, is to die a torturous death on a cross for them. He dies for them. I mean, if we could actually give ourselves fully over to that truth. I'm, I'm thinking about Martin Luther, who says that the cross is the test of everything. Now, if we could give ourselves over to that truth, that the cross is the center of our faith, it's the center of the identity of Jesus, it's the center of the identity of God the Father, and because of that, it is the center of my identity. If I could give myself over to that truth, well, I would be mature, wouldn't I? Go back with me to Ephesians 4. Let me show you. Let me show you this. Listen to how Paul describes those who've given themselves over to that truth. This is what he says. Therefore, after you've gotten rid of lying, so things that aren't the truth, each of you must tell the truth to your neighbor because we're parts of each other in the same body. He says, be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Don't provide an opportunity for the devil. I mean, look at that. It's in falsehood. It's in lies, half-truths, that the devil has this foothold in our life, and it looks like anger and ugliness, and he's saying, resist that, because you know the truth. And look, he goes on in verse 29. Don't let any foul words come out of your mouth. Only say what's helpful, what's needed for building up the community so that it benefits those who hear what you say. Don't make the Holy Spirit of God unhappy. You were sealed for Him on the day of redemption. Put aside all bitterness, Losing your temper, anger, shouting, slander, along with every other evil. Listen to what he calls those things, evil. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving uh, to each other in the same way that God forgave you in Christ. What's he talking about? The cross. He gets more specific. Look, he says, therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children. Live your life with love, following the example of Christ What's the example? Who loved us and gave himself for us. He's talking about the cross. Okay, He was a sacrificial offering that smelled so sweet to God. 
I mean, I want to follow in that example. Don't you? I mean, I want my life to smell sweet to God. And so I cling to the cross. I cling to that truth. You know, John tells us that in Jesus, we see perfect love. Uh, In the Son of God, specifically, we see perfect love. And what he means by that is that at the cross, um, because Jesus is without sin, his love is perfect. So when you and I love one another, our, our love is always conditioned upon our sin. It keeps us from loving people fully like they deserve. We love them for our, our own ends or our own purposes. We love them if they're good to us, if they treat us right. Okay, Our love is always imperfect, but at the cross where there is zero selfishness because there is zero sin, we see perfect love. And what John tells us is that perfect love, the kind we see at the cross, perfect love drives out fear. And so I think the first reason we cling to the cross in this moment is because there is a lot to be afraid of this week. I know all the rumors and talk of violence that's likely this week. And if you had told me a couple weeks ago that it would happen, I wouldn't have believed you. And now I think, yeah, it's possible. And if you were going to ask me, Eric, what if we don't have church next week? You know, like what if this world falls apart next week? What's the last thing you'd want us to say? I'd say cling to the cross because perfect love casts out fear. You will be okay. But the second thing I would say is that cling to the cross because not only do we have consolation from the cross, but we have our example in the cross. Okay? We have the example of what it looks like to love those you don't agree with, to love those that are different from you, to love those who are even your enemies. That's what the cross gives us. And so let me say this really clearly this week when so much is at stake. If your words or your actions, if your attitude does not reflect the cross of Jesus this week, then not only is it untrue, not only is it immature, it does not reflect the worthy calling you've been called to. Cling to the cross. Cling to the cross. Paul says in Philippians 4, this is Philippians 4, verse 8, he says, Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And what we know to be most true, most excellent, and most worthy of our praise is the cross, where we see who Jesus is clearly. I pray that you will cling to that truth this week. I pray that it would console you and that you would follow in its example and that you would take up your cross and follow Christ Jesus this week.